Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Wicked Side. This is Brenna speaking, and with me today I have a real good friend of mine who's one of the smartest chicks I know, and since we're talking about a smart chick today, I had to have my smart chick with me, so... Hi, this is Megan. Yep. Megan and I, we, we met through my, my work, and we've stayed friends ever since, really, so... You want to tell some people about uh, the people about yourself a little bit? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I am a lab technician. I work at Notre Dame doing some DNA sequencing, little RNA sequencing here and there. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it, and uh, I hope to be able to keep doing it for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I hope so too. So, and uh, like I said, considering today, I'm going to be talking about a uh, pretty badass smart girl that I feel. Uh, doesn't get enough attention. And she's very, very significant to medical history, especially pertaining to Indiana. Unfortunately, nobody really knows about her. And then, of course, this is a dark history podcast. So we have the darker aspects that eventually we'll be getting into. I will get to that later. Right now, though, I just want to focus like on her life and the positives and all the things that she accomplished. So... It's cool. We'll go ahead and, and get right into it. Um, unfortunately, usually I do transcribe my notes on uh, onto my phone so you guys don't hear the page turns anymore. But I got way too into this. <laughs> and I couldn't stop researching it. And I'm, I'm kind of glad that I did because I found a, a really great source. Author Nicole Koprowski wrote a book called She Sleeps Well, The Extraordinary Life and Murder of Dr. Helen Ellis Hermine Nabe. And it goes in depth into her history. I cannot recommend this book enough. This is a really interesting subject. She is a really interesting woman. And this book is incredibly well written. Um, the source that I got was actually through indiana.gov. And it had a kind of summary or synopsis of her book that was actually 10 pages long. So I got quite a, um, a good amount of information. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So today I'm back, obviously, on the local spectrum and the historical spectrum, going older and away from... Uh, we did last time with Andrea was the bridge collapse, the Mirandi Bridge in Genoa, Italy. And that wasn't that long ago. That was only a couple of years ago. But we're going way back in time for this one because of the people involved and their historical significance. And again, it's a bit of true crime, but... It's more a historical figure that I haven't heard enough of and I don't believe other people have heard enough of. And then when they do, unfortunately, I, I think it's overly fixated on her death, which I understand because of the circumstances involved. And there is a huge legend about her haunting the place she was murdered, I believe. Oh, interesting. Or some of the, the schools that she taught at and things like that. Okay. So it a big deal around Indy, I guess, about her ghost and, and a lot of the legends surrounding her. Hmm. But I want to kind of focus on the things she accomplished and, and what she did uh, for her community. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to start from the beginning. Helen Eloise Hermine Nabe was born December 22nd of 1875 in what was then Prussia. It's now Poland, Germany. Now I dug and dug and dug online and I couldn't find out Helen's mother's name. However, her father was a structural engineer named Otto Winschild, or Winschild, I think is my how it might be said. Author Nicole Dabrowski, who wrote the book that I had mentioned, reveals that this wasn't just an accident. A lot of what we know about Dr. Nabe was from her own memoirs and her own writings on herself. And she is 
a child of unwed parents, and at the time, that was really scandalous. Oh, yeah. Something like that could have ended her career if it had gotten out. So her father left her mother. Her mother passed away, and she was raised by her uncle. And her uncle's name... Daniel Emmerich. So her her uncle, Daniel Emmerich, raised her. And he was pretty progressive for a guy back then, especially, you know, in that area, which was typically very conservative. But he really thought it was important that women were educated. And he made sure not only that she had a good public education, but he educated her at home, too, privately. And made sure that she had as many tools at her disposal that he could give her. And that was really cool. Uh, it's something that I don't think it's focused on enough is like we have our heroes and we have our people that we hold up, but it's the people who support them. Oh, absolutely. And all of the people who kind of lift these people up, they're important, mm-hmm. you know? Nobody is an island. Nobody does it on our own. We really have that awful stigma where we want to believe that, but it's just not possible. It's just not true. You right. Know? Everybody has to have that support system or else they never get anywhere. Exactly. And... She was fortunate enough to have that in her uncle and also in her cousin. Later on in her life, she decided that she wanted to be a doctor. She was very adamant that she was going to be a doctor. But unfortunately, at the time, it wasn't, women weren't allowed in medical schools. So you, it, women weren't allowed in German medical schools until 1900. And then in Prussia, they weren't allowed until 1908. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's uh, obvious that it wasn't going to happen. Not mm-hmm. there. Anyway. But her cousin, Augusta, who she was close to, came to visit her and told her, hey, in America, women are allowed to attend medical school. And, of course, that was kind of a no-brainer for her. She decided, all right, I'm going to pack up, I'm going to emigrate, and I'm going to uh, become a doctor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and she did. My Good for her. Yeah. I have so much respect for her. And the more I researched on her, the more I kind of admire her. And I'm, I'm not somebody who hero worships. I don't, mm-hmm. I've said this before and I probably will get a lot of flack for it, but I don't believe in heroes. You know, no, no. I, I believe in just people and sometimes we get it right. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, people are garbage. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but every now and then we get it right. And some of us are prone to getting it right more than others. And that's... And some get it right in a really big way. Exactly. And she was one that did. Uh, November 16th of 1896, she arrived in Indianapolis and uh, started working as a domestic servant and a seamstress for four years. According to Augusta, this was so she could learn English from the upper tiers of society. She also attended Butler University to kind of fill in the gaps in her education from Prussia and to prepare herself for the challenges faced in medical school. Getting into medical school wasn't easy, but Helen's family was known to say you can't be a master at anything unless you know every detail of the work. And this seemed to be her personal motto. Kabrowski says that to attend medical school, Helen had to provide proof that she had good moral character and that her education was well-rounded. But she also had to pass an assessment on topics like mechanics, hydrostatics, optics, and acoustics. That's really interesting, like, prereqs. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, plus she had to pass a state medical exam with a, at least a score of 75%. But all of the hard work did finally pay off, and 
She got into school in 1900. Uh, she attended the Medical College of Indiana, which MCI is what it was abbreviated to, mm-hmm. which later became known as Indiana University School of Medicine. Oh, yeah. Yep. We Still do around a, today. <laughs> we do a little collaboration work with them sometimes, I think. That's cool. So do sequencing in the area, so it makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So if I had the ability or if I knew how to add fanfare, I 100% would add that into the sound effects because it's such a huge thing, you know, such a huge accomplishment Mm -hmm. on its own to uproot yourself, take yourself away from the only family you've ever known, the only support system you've ever had, go to a new place and... Don't speak the language. Don't speak the language. Yeah. Wow. Incredibly intelligent person, able to teach herself the language, Mm -hmm. which I've tried taking classes to learn another language. (laughs) I can't do it with help. I have been trying to learn Russian for so many years and... No. <laughs> it's it's just it's so hard to teach yourself a language, especially when you're not in the place. Like mm-hmm. she was lucky to be in the place, but without the resources, like she didn't have Duolingo or mm-hmm. Rosetta Stone. Like mm-hmm. I can only imagine how challenging it would have been to move to a new place and pick up a new language without any of the resources we have today. Exactly. And then of course medical school itself provided her with a ton of challenges. First was financial, of course. Medical school cost her around twelve hundred um, which converts to around 33000 in today's cash. Now, I was curious, and I actually looked this up, and according to www.graduateschooltuition.com, the average cost of medical degree from Indiana University School of Medicine today is around 35800 That's pretty. I thought it was more. I thought it was more expensive to, to go to medical school now. It, is for out of state. Okay, that's that's the kicker there. Yeah, they said that for out of state it's 61,000. Is that per year or is that total cost? I think it's total cost. Wow, that's even more surprising. Yeah. My undergrad institution started at 34 a year. Really? Yeah. Woo. And it's gone up since then. But this is for general, I believe. I don't think it's for any specialties. Okay. Well, also medical school versus undergrad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I need to go to a private school, so... Yeah. The average in the U.S. overall, because I looked that up too, was 35... Or, yeah, 35,639. And for out-of-state, 58,000. Mm-hmm. So, again, rough estimates. Okay. But around that. So it's a little higher than the national average um, to be out-of-state. But for her, yeah. So I was surprised how little percentage-wise... Yeah, yeah, That it had changed, you know, or, you know, the translation, so. Turns out there's not a whole lot of uh, inflation that's gone on with the medical school, like the artificial inflation that we've seen in undergrad degrees. Nope, they've just cut wages. (laughs) (laughs) As brutally as they could get away with it. But uh, back to Helen, um, the cost included other fees, of course, including her books, plus, interesting bit of information, $5 for every body part she had to dissect. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. She had to pay for that. So, to pay for this, she worked as a seamstress during the summer, but she also used her skills, and notice I didn't say talent, because I dislike the word talent when it comes to drawing and art. Oh, there's so much work that goes into it. Like, yeah. I, I can't draw to save my life. I can do flowers okay, but that's about it. I just, I hate, I hate the word talent, because to me, it... it gives people the illusion that it just comes out of thin air. 
in that we don't work for it or we don't put a ton of effort in, you know? The amount of idiots I have come through my door every day and try to haggle with me. It's like, look, if you could do this or your friend could order the kit off Amazon and do it the same quality that I can do this, you wouldn't be coming to me. But there's a reason you're coming to me. It's because I've worked really hard to get to where I am. Mm -hmm. So respect that. Oh, absolutely. You know? I... But you put the word talent attached to anything and it automatically strips away the hard work. Mm-hmm. And and so I I just, I hated using it. And I really liked to, then in um, her book, she used the word skills too and not talent. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated that. My, my parents, like especially my mom has always said that I'm very talented at knitting. And I mean, I did pick it up fairly quickly, mm-hmm. but I've also been knitting for almost nine years now. Yeah. And I still come across techniques that I'm unfamiliar with. I go to YouTube. It's like, how to do doubled stitches? Mm-hmm. And there's just, there's been so much time, so many hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours that I've put into it over the last almost a decade. Yeah. It's definitely, it's, it's not just something that you can just pick up a pair of knitting needles and, you know, go knit the, sh- like a shawl that I, like I gave you. No, no. And that's it. It's gorgeous. I got so many compliments on that on my vacation. It, it's very, very pretty. The one you did for Andrea too is gorgeous. There and are a they're lot of so really intricate. <laughs> it takes so long. Knitting is such a slow process. Yeah, I don't have the patience for it. I'll leave that to you, dear. <laughs> I just put on Netflix and just, just knit along. Pull up yeah. a pattern on a computer and put Netflix on the TV. I can kind of see how that would be like soothing though. Especially when you're watching a show that you've seen like multiple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, focusing too hard then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. But, in the car uh, on a long road trip, pull up the pattern on your phone, just go to town. That sounds nice. That's what that I did on my, really nice. my vacation. Anytime uh, my friend was driving, I'd just pull out my knitting and we'd talk while I was knitting. And she would do the same. She pulled out her knitting when I was driving. Yeah. See, and there lies the other problem, though, is that if you enjoy what you do, people assume you, do, you shouldn't get paid for it. Oh, yeah. And it's like... No, just because I chose a profession that doesn't make me want to slit my wrist every day <laughs> doesn't mean I deserve to be paid less. Right. That's I, not how that works, Dare. I love my job and I love my knitting, but at the same time, I'm not necessarily going to list all the things that I knit on Etsy for just the cost of materials. Yeah. I put like I put probably 50 hours into the shawl that I gave you and about mm-hmm. 100 hours into the one that I gave to Andrea and like it's it's so time consuming and my mm-hmm. time is my time is worth something. Yeah, the arts get get shit on a lot. Unfortunately, there's still a very strong stigma that like if you're a creative person or if you do anything creatively or that you enjoy, you shouldn't get paid fairly. And I'm I'm glad to see that there are more people standing up now and saying, "Hey, that mindset isn't right. We need to change that." Um, I will say I've seen a lot of my friends and a lot of family and a lot of even my clients um, that advocate pretty openly for fair you know to fair pay for artists and creators because it's hard it's a skill mm-hmm. set you know it takes a lot of work and effort to master so, and it's not a hobby it's a career mm-hmm. you know and i think too many people want to relegate anything that's creative to being a hobby mm-hmm. and no <laughs> no absolutely not. it's not it's not a hobby i know when i when i went up on my vacation recently my friend and i happened across an art show mm-hmm. it had some absolutely stunning pieces Mm. and I could have spent thousands of dollars there unfortunately Mm. I limited myself to 40 and I got (laughs) one copper bracelet that was really nice but there was there was this one piece that I really really wanted to get it was Mm. like 400 dollars 
And I might have been able to justify two, but I couldn't justify that. I was, and it, I wasn't willing to haggle with the artist because it was such a beautiful piece. I was like, yeah, you know what? They deserved that. I can't afford this. But I'm also very interested in learning how to do something like this. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to get a resin kit and I'm going to start playing around with resin. Maybe one day I'll be able to make something really cool worthy of putting on a wall too. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the, the great thing about art, too, is if you can't do it or, you know, you can't do it now, you know, you can learn. Mm-hmm. You can pick it up and you can try and you can put in the effort. That's another reason I think, too, why I kind of hate the word talent because I think it people assume it means that they can't do it. Absolutely not. And it, it's not the case at all. Anybody can pick up a pencil and draw, you know, as long as they have the motor skills, you know. But that just because that drawing's awkward doesn't mean it's not a drawing. Mm-hmm. It's still a drawing, you know. You can still take that drawing, pick out the parts that you think you could do better, yeah. and focus on those and try to improve them. Refine it. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Put in the effort and then you'll have the results, you know. I It's a lot like if like working out, you know. If you want a certain muscle group to be stronger, work on it. Mm-hmm. That'll happen. You'll have that. Again, I, I, there's so many reasons why I don't like the word talent, and that's encompassed in all of that like i said i was really grateful to the author that she didn't use the word talent she <laughs> used skill set and i was like mm-hmm. thank you <laughs> yes very appreciative but anyway she used yes. that skill set to do medical illustrations for medical textbooks Ooh. she did detailed uh, anatomy illustrations surgery illustrations pathology slides and uh tissue samples how they looked under a microscope mm-hmm. um that's really cool yeah like I said, when I say the more I learned about this amazing woman, the more I came to admire her, I mean that wholeheartedly. She mm-hmm. was a very hardworking and intelligent person, and I very much respect that. And I'm really crushed that, especially from our state, you know? She meant so much to the state, and yet almost nobody nobody knows her name, nobody knows what she did or what she accomplished, and it is frustrating. I had never heard of her. When I first mentioned that I was interested in doing the podcast with you, you said, oh, cool, I've got this interesting case about a woman doctor from Indiana. I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. And that's all I knew coming into it. Honestly, that's all I knew coming into today. And I was like, and I asked you yesterday, I was like, should I do some research or should I try to go in blind? And you had said that, you know, your brother had enjoyed coming in blind. So I decided to do that as well. But, like, nobody's heard of her. I didn't grow up in Indiana, but I've been living here for years mm-hmm. and I work in science and I had never heard this woman's name. Yeah. And that that's what's really heartbreaking about it to me is um, we just don't, we don't remember the people who contribute as mm-hmm. much as we should. And I think that's something that needs to change, you know, but hopefully via things like this and this podcast, we can slowly do that. Mm-hmm. So um, try to highlight people we did with, um, Francis Glessner Lee and um, Marsha P. Johnson mm-hmm. and, you know, other women that deserve that. Oh, you should do an episode on Rosalind Franklin sometime. I think she's on the list, actually. <laughs> nice. I think nice. she's on the list. Yeah. Also, um, what was her name? I can't remember. But, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's daughter. Alice, maybe? I don't remember, but like, quite a badass. Yeah. I think she the one that had the, the pet snake. I think so. Yeah. I'm trying to remember because I've 
you research so much of this shit and it gets like swirled in your mind after a while. I see so much of this stuff just popping up randomly online. I was like, oh, that's a fun fact. I know, and I always double check that stuff. So Mm -hmm. if anything, like a meme comes up and it's like, hey, um, like this person did this and aren't they great for it? It's like, okay, cool. Let me go fact check that real quick. Mm -hmm. I I try not to take things at face value for, for... that at all especially on facebook oh yeah especially on facebook yeah i don't i don't put any credence into stuff like that unless i fact checked it yeah like i might see it be like oh that's kind of cool and then you know just scroll on and not necessarily but i won't quote that to somebody else without at least doing some due diligence checking to see if it's worth anything and even then even if it's accurate it might not be in the proper context either Mm -hmm. you know context is so important it is you know um there, there's a joke that says, I think it was Craig Ferguson said Hitler was a painter, but that's hardly the story. You know? <laughs> yep. So you kind of need the wider spectrum to really fill in and understand what you're reading. Oh yeah, I took a, a class in undergrad, actually two of them that talked about the uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament and framed them in a historical and literary context, and it was Ooh. fascinating. That sounds really interesting. It was absolutely fascinating. It really mm. frames a lot of things differently. Like some of it comes down, some of it's like a word choice with translation because the mm-hmm. Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but the New Testament was written in Greek. Mm-hmm. So when they were trying to make the connections from one to another, they had to make word choices sometimes where, you know, uh, Greek may not have different words for things. They might Their words for women might be, you know, virgin, not a virgin. Mm-hmm. Those might be their different terms for women where the Hebrew translation would more accurately mean young woman of marriageable age. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff. And those nuances matter. Mm-hmm. The, especially with something like religion, where people just take all their common sense and just chuck it right out the nearest fucking window. Mm-hmm. And not to say that there aren't intelligent religious people, I'm not saying that. I know but a lot you do of see more religious people. Exactly. But you do see a lot with like the masses that people will use religion as a shield so often to avoid critically thinking mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's very frustrating yeah but so i love both of those classes that i took the the professors that i had for those classes were brilliant i have mm-hmm. no idea what they practice if they practice anything but um brilliant yeah. and i love the classes they were very informative mm-hmm. just i kind of like that you don't know though because it, it feels like it was coming from a more objective place though too mm-hmm and that's that's really good. They weren't pushing anything. It was, this is it as it is. Mm-hmm. Take it or leave it. Yeah, so. I honestly I couldn't tell you what the uh, religious affiliation of any of my college professors, especially the religion professors that I had, and I had I took several religion classes, mm-hmm. um, but I couldn't tell you what the religious affiliation of any of the professors were. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I actually kind of <laughs> like that. <laughs> I loved how it was presented. Yeah. It connected well to people of really any religious affiliation. There was no, it didn't feel like there was an agenda behind it. And that's Good. one thing that I liked about St. Mary's is they had religious studies. They didn't frame it as theology. It was religious studies. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, this is what we teach and this is what, you know, this is what we believe and why. It was, this is the historical context. This is what, you know, this religion does or this mm-hmm. religion does. This is what, this is what the Bible says. And this is what, like what one translation could be of the text versus another mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah i know too like historically people have a hard time to like adding context to mm-hmm. scenarios too and and 
realizing that there are multiple perspectives and what's that saying that like history is written by the victors you know mm-hmm. you have to look around a little more get more perspective look at the other side what were they thinking what was you know I, you see it a lot i think when it comes to like the roman greek and roman history mm-hmm. but people aren't looking at it from the perspective of the people they conquered no you know they they see these military heroes and strategists that were fucking amazing and mind-blowing and this super advanced civilization for the time but they're completely ignoring the potential that these people trampled over to get there that actually makes me think i saw a meme last night after i got home Mm -hmm. from the scene in avatar the last airbender Mm -hmm. when ang goes to the fire nation school Mm -hmm. and the teacher's like Oh, what year did Fire Lord Sozin defeat the Air the Air Nation army? And mm-hmm. Aang is like, uh, the Air Nation were nomads; they didn't have an army. Mm-hmm. And it had the caption: "It's like history is written by the survivors and the victors." Mm-hmm. And it's like that's actually really cool how they stuck that in a kids show. Yeah, yeah. I have I give that show so much credit. <laughs> the writing is so brilliant in it's it. It's such and- a good show. Even if, if you're an adult and you've never watched Avatar The Last Air- Airbender, I really recommend it because it has so much layers and so much depth to it. And you don't you don't really think of that from a kid's show. Mm-hmm. You know? But even to the point of like the importance of ethical animal husbandry and communication between friends and, and the need to kind of talk things out and mm-hmm. talking out in a reasonable and respectful way. There's... So many different ways that that show just hit the nail on the head. And mm-hmm. I think it's a reason that, like, all this time later, it still endure- endears and, you know, people still love it. And even as an adult, I'm 35 now, and I still love that show. <laughs> oh, and I love I, that show. I love Legend yeah. of Korra, too, the sequel. Oh, Korra was The way that it yeah. handles trauma and mental health is... Mm-hmm. Mind-blowing. I love yeah. Core. A lot of people hate it, but honestly, I really like it. And I like the way I that too. It, it ha- To me, it had a lot more depth. And I think that's... It did away with a lot of frills that Avatar had, which weren't bad. No. It, it's not bad. Avatar is a different thing, though. Mm-hmm. Whereas Korra was a, a, a different take. I think it was made for a more mature audience. And I like how Korra had a lot of good, competent, strong adult characters like you see yes. Tenzin and Lin and they do stuff they're good they're mm-hmm. competent you know adult but human do and flawed exactly. yeah very mm-hmm. flawed especially like um when they talked about like Tenzin's recollections of his father mm-hmm. you know of Aang and how there was a discrepancy between how he remembered Aang and how his symbols remembered Aang mm-hmm. and the very human way they presented that and when Tenzin was lost smart. in the the fog of souls, and he yes. sees and he comes to the realization that he is not his father and he shouldn't be his father. Yeah, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I, it was really nice to see that aspect too, because I, I, I think you've seen that like, and we've heard about it from children of like rock stars or movie stars that that kind of shadow and that expectation, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of hangs over, and that it takes them a while to realize, hey. I don't have to be my parents. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be the next rock star or the next movie star. I can do other things and be what I want, and that's just fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to go into a legacy. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked that they kind of broached that and, and went into that, like, hey, you don't have to be who your parents are. You can you can be yourself. And 
the much broader spectrum that that covers. It was really well done. Mm-hmm. You know, can't say enough good things about that show. We've gotten so far off track. We have, and that happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you were saying, we got onto this because you were saying how sad it is that we've forgotten, as, mm-hmm. a, as a culture at whole, we've forgotten so much of Dr. Nabe's contributions. Yes, yeah. Well, and the, and the challenges she faced, that mm-hmm. was the thing that I kept coming back to in a lot of my research. This woman constantly hit a wall, and instead of just sitting at the base of the wall and crying, she was like, nope, I'm getting over it. I'm climbing over this wall. And I'm doing everything in my power to make this dream come true. Mm-hmm. You know, And they can keep throwing roadblocks in my path, and they can keep trying to hold me back and slow me down, and I'm not going to let that happen. And just all the way around, she was a woman ahead of her time. Oh, when you said the year that this was, that her story was taking place, I was like, wait a sec. Yeah. Really? That mind-blowing that there was a woman doctor Mm -hmm. in that era. Like, when I first heard about this, I was expecting, oh, you know, 60s, 70s, you know, still kind of harder for women to get into those positions. But I wasn't expecting 1800s. Yeah. It's wild, isn't it? That's so impressive. It was one of the reasons why I was so drawn to it. Because I'm like, man, she faced some shit. <laughs> <laughs> to put it as base as you can. Like, she waded through some serious horse shit mm-hmm. to get to where she was. And she had to have been good. She oh, yeah. She had to have been really, really good to get taken seriously. Yep. The financial aspect wasn't the only challenge. She had to regularly attend classes, of course, maintain a 75% in all of her classes. And her days were typically 14 hours long. But our girl was a walking, talking success story. She began accumulating such credentials as being appointed curator of the Pathology Museum her junior year by Dr. Frank B. Wynn, who was the director of pathology at MCI and in charge of pathology labs of the school. And the next year, Dr. Wynn chose her to be his only preceptee for the year, and she began teaching underclassmen, which was an unheard of honor for a student, according to Kaprowski. Wow. Yep. This didn't make her popular with her male classmates, though. <laughs> I imagine not. Yeah. They didn't like being bested by a woman. And they certainly, I imagine, didn't like being taught by a woman. And not just a woman, but you also have a foreign woman on top of that yep and that t- kind of ticks me into a point here i was trying to wonder like what was i writing here struggling to so, read your own handwriting well it, the point was so off but oh, i yeah. i get it because I, I i kind of related to something that i've gone through quite a bit um is the why is it that people like that want you to do worse so they don't have to try harder or do better mm-hmm. you know the, ex- the experiences that i've had and it's so frustrating that people get mad about the effort you put in or the way you do things because they think in their perception it makes them look bad but instead of trying to do more in order to be better they get mad at you mm-hmm. and insist you should do worse i've got a good less. friend that's a composer and she mm-hmm. recently had a, a confrontation with a friend mm-hmm. and she puts in a lot of effort and a friend of hers was jealous of her success and how well mm-hmm. she was doing but he didn't put in the effort yeah and it, and i faced that before with colleagues that they want me to change the way i do things and bring down my standard to accommodate them and i'm not willing to do that oh, i no. won't do it and they can be upset with that if they want 
but I'm not basing my personal responsibility off of their expectation. My personal responsibility I take seriously. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they don't. I'm saying I approach it different. And if they don't like that approach, that's on them. Mm-hmm. That's not on me to accommodate them. And that's, I think, a very spoiled mindset, too. Do the way I want you to do it. Because oh, yeah. I think that's better. And because it makes everything easier for me. Yeah, that's... Kindly fuck off oh. with that. Yeah. <laughs> but what I wrote is, don't try to throw water on my fire because you're too lazy to add fuel to your own. Mm-hmm. And that's very much how it feels. So I empathized with her a lot through reading a lot of this. Oh, I bet. Because it's like, yeah, I understand that. I've been there. And I'm not saying I'm a brilliant or a genius or anything like that. It's just... Sometimes in certain fields, when you try a little harder to do things a little better, people get really threatened. Mm -hmm. And it's very frustrating to have to deal with that. But I digress. We'll get back to her very impressive career. (laughs) Dr. Helen graduated MCI as one of two women in the class on April 22nd of 1904. After she kept her position at the university as 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 the lab curator and clinical professor... And it's important to note that she was not paid for this. She wasn't paid? No. Um, from what I read, though, for her, it was a way to give back. Okay. Because at first I was like, oh, fuck them. You know, yeah. that's shameful. You need it's to pay her. It's a lot of work that she put in. But to her, her perception of it was she was giving back to the medical community mm-hmm. and to the educational system that had provided her with the knowledge so if that was her taking her perspective on it and she didn't feel exploited or used all right mm-hmm. you know then i will defer to her view on it yeah so after all she was the one going, going through, through it. it yeah she she voluntarily did it of her own volition so mm-hmm. and what year did you say she graduated 1904 okay yeah So it's important, like I said, to note that she wasn't paid. In 1905, however, a Dr. J.N. Hurtley, or Hurdy, unfortunate name for a doctor. (laughs) Very unfortunate name for a doctor. My first note was actually the Hurdy-Gurdy, like the incident. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, He was the secretary of the Indiana State Board of Health, and he appointed Dr. Nabe as deputy state health officer. She was the first woman to hold this position. This meant it was her job to investigate suspected epidemics, such as typhoid and diphtheria, and make recommendations to correct unsanitary conditions. She was, if she was alive today, she'd be the person everybody was ignoring. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. Or crying conspiracy, or crying threats to freedom, or whatever Mm, mm -hmm. bullshit made-up victimology people use now to make themselves feel special. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, There's nobody pays attention to the public health officials, despite the years and years of school they go nobody through. Nobody pays attention to professionals or officials or any experts at all anymore. I think we're like this. We're we're just just this side of people doing their own fucking dentistry. There are so many people out there that know enough to think that they know everything. Oh yeah, yeah, when, and, and they think their Google search is as good as a degree or a trade school or anything now. And then you go and you get you get an education like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've got a bachelor's in biology, and if there's one thing that I learned from that beyond all of the you know memorization and stuff for my job, mm-hmm. is that there is so much that I don't know. There is so much that you know, you get you know a hundred biology PhDs and they still don't know. 
Yeah. There's so much out there. You, yep. There's there's a fine line between knowing enough to think that you know everything and but not knowing enough to realize that you know nothing. Yeah. Yeah, people will say the most ridiculous shit about viruses and I I just like I'm a tattoo artist <laughs> with like and a history buff. I I have received a decent education for the Indiana public school system, which isn't great. <laughs> but I taught myself quite a bit too, but mm-hmm. I also understand and acknowledge that like I don't know the nuances. Mm-hmm. People are incapable of admitting that they don't know something. They want to pretend they're an expert on everything and that they understand nuances of things they can't possibly understand. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody has the testicular fortitude to just admit, I don't know. That's actually something that uh, my whole class were told after when, before we did our, our presentations for our senior projects that we all did, Mm -hmm. we were told, it's like, if you're asked a question that you don't know the answer to, mm-hmm. it's better to say, I don't know, than to just pull something out of your ass. Yeah. Especially when you're presenting your research to a bunch of, you know, a bunch of PhDs in your field. Yeah. Like you don't just pull something out of your ass. There are plenty of ways to say that you don't know that sound a little nicer than just, I don't know. A favorite mm-hmm. being, that was outside of the scope of this study but would be interesting for future research. I like that. <laughs> and I might use that on the podcast. <laughs> uh, like, there's so many ways that you can say it, but you don't just make something up. Yeah. It's, I'm really glad that I actually, I learned that as part of my education. It's like, it is perfectly acceptable to say, I don't know. I have to look that up. Yeah. And I think we all do it to an extent. I remember doing it quite a bit, young, passionate kid who, you know, felt a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and I I had to temper that as I got older and I realized, look, you're just because you're passionate and you know you're right doesn't mean you get to say things that are incorrect. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility to make sure the information that you're saying is accurate. Mm-hmm. And I've had to acknowledge several failings in that and and work on it and and be better you know and i'm again not saying i'm a paragon of any kind (laughs) but like i wish more people would yeah you know especially especially now but anyway um back to it yep she went uh all over the state helping other doctors working with the public and processing processing pathological samples Mm -hmm. however Dr. Nabe was still overlooked. When the position of superintendent of the lab came up, Dr. Hurdy, still an awful name for a doctor, <laughs> gave the position to a Dr. T.V. Keene, who didn't even apply for the job. Apparently, the oh, members of the... Bullshit. Yeah, exactly. The members of the State Board of Health felt he was best for the position due to his excellence and thoroughness as city sanitarian. Dr. Hurdy was a constant source of frustration for Dr. Nabe. He was an absolute misogynistic prick who didn't think a woman was capable of being as effective as a man. Yeah, I was, I was, I was thinking, when you said that he gave the job to a man that didn't even apply, like, what, what was his superior qualification? His penis? Yeah, that's exactly what it was for him. And it gets worse. It gets a lot worse. Dr. Hurdy is an absolute asshole. Oh, no. And I refuse to acknowledge him with any kind of respect. In fact, it's hard for me to even call him doctor. 
Oh, that's that's Anne's. He is massively unprofessional, massively egotistical, and absolutely a shame to his profession. So, I can't state that enough. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear how much worse it gets. Yep. Um, So you see, eventually she was promoted to acting superintendent. She was paid fourteen hundred a year. This was not the standard. She, you know what the standard was? Yes. Okay. Um, Dr. Hurdy promised her, however, that her salary would increase to 1800 or 2000 The industry standard was about 2000 But over a year later, he still had not increased her salary. He told her there was no money for the increase and claimed because she was a woman, she didn't deserve the same amount as a man. Oh. Oh, no. Yeah. To her face. Oh, that's bad. Yeah, yeah. The truth, however, was that Hurdy was already looking for a replacement for her the whole time. He found it a real capable man, his words, in a Dr. Sidmans, who was actively, he was actively recruiting. In his correspondence with Sidmans, he offered to pay him 2000 for his first year and 3000 for his next. So clearly, money wasn't the issue. The slimeball hurdy was just a common bigot. Y'all can't see my face. It's not a happy one. Nope. I was pissed. Yep. <laughs> I was super livid when I, was, when I read that. But again, it gets worse. Of course it does. Yeah, yeah. It's science in the early 1900s. Of course it gets worse. Yeah. So, Dr. Nabe contacted the newspapers and tendered her resignation. She cited discrimination and unkempt promises. It's important to note that Dr. Nabe was so dedicated to the job that she constantly kept herself up to date on all the latest information and techniques, including studying with Dr. Anna Wessels Williams of New York, of the New York Research Lab, pardon me. And if she sounds familiar, or if she sounds important, it's because she is. She was one. She was the creator of the rapid diagnosis of rabies method. Oh, really? Yep. She okay. was instrumental in implementing ways to prevent the spread of rabies by educating the public. But of course, this didn't impress Dr. Hurdy with his low opinion of women. Of course not. Yeah. Of course not. In the end, the lying sack of shit gave everybody in the lab a raise 11 days after Dr. Nabe's resignation. Wait, seriously? After her departure, yeah. That is infuriating. Oh yeah, it was a deliberate slap in the face. See, we had the money the whole time. That is absolutely infuriating. And Dr. Sidmans, well, that asshole got himself an assistant and published an article using Dr. Nabe's research and didn't give her any credit. What was that that um, Watson and Crick joke you told me? We should talk about Rosalind Franklin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. How they, the only thing they discovered was her notes. Her notebook. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yeah, and she is on the list. Like I said, for that reason. If I'm still in the area when you do that one, hit me up. I plan to. <laughs> <laughs> However, leaving wasn't a bad thing for Dr. Nabe. Mm -hmm. Getting out from under the narrow minds gave her freedom to grow. She continued to give back to the community by her non-paid teaching position at IU School of Medicine. 
Her research led her to contribute to medical articles, and she continued to use her skills in medical illustration as well. She also became a member of the American Medical Association. She opened her own private practice and continued to research rabies at $75 or more per case. Dr. Nabe was dedicated to her patients and took them male or female, which at the time was actually not common. If you were a female doctor, you almost exclusively took female patients. Because huh. there was, of course, the perceived danger of dealing with a male patient. Mm. And, um, like, the stigma, too, of dealing with somebody who might look down on you because oh, of, of your gender. So she didn't stand by that, though. Hmm. She helped everybody. Good for her. And I do mean everybody. Across um, economic, across racial, across ethnic barriers, she helped everybody. Good for her. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. She was a real stand-up person. She was so dedicated to her patient patients, she even had a phone installed in her apartment so she could be reached 24-7 to help those in her care. Aw, that's good. Yep. In, Krabowski, in Krabowski's words, and I, and I quote her in her writing because I think she said it best, mm-hmm. she would always answer a knock or a call, regardless of the hour. Quite often, she would treat people for free or accept payments via the barter system. She acquired a piano and lessons to go with it from the system. Ooh. Yep. That's a good trait. And the list continues. She was the first female elected to, or first, okay, I screwed that up. Edit. She was the first elected female faculty member for the Indiana Veterinarians College where she was chair of parasitology and hematology. It's debated whether or not she was the first in the nation, but it is believed that she was the first elected chair in any veterinarian college in the U.S. Oh, wow. The first female elected chair. Gotta say, I took a parasitology course, mm-hmm. and I loved it. Yeah. It was so cool. It was, it was really cool. It sounds like an interesting subject. Um, Also of important note was her role in the advancement of sexual education. She worked at Normal College of the North America Gymnast Union in Indianapolis as medical director and associate professor of physiology and hygiene. Mm -hmm. She was the highest paid woman there at $4 an hour. Women, however, were traditionally given fewer classes than men. So while there may have been men on the staff who were paid less, they did all make more than her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Of Some course. more sexist bullshittery. She also worked with women's clubs to teach better hygiene and sanitation to all groups, regardless of social status, ethnicity, and she made sure especially to reach out to the African-American community in Indy. Oh, that's good. Yep. And if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, wow, this must have pissed off a lot of people, <laughs> a successful, too. well-educated woman who worked with underprivileged and demanded respect and fair treatment, definitely made waves. And so we get to the dark part of the Dark History Podcast. Oh no. Yeah. On the night of October 23rd, 1911, Augusta Nabe, if you remember Helen's cousin, woke from a terrifying dream. A dream where a black snake wove between her and her cousin Helen, both tearing them apart and pushing them together at the same time. Augusta vowed the next morning... When she woke, Augusta vowed to check on her cousin the next morning. But it was too late. The black snake had already struck, and the soulless monster did it in a horrifically brutal fashion. 
That same night, Dr. Nabe's apartment was broken into and her throat was slit twice from ear to ear. The Shit. depraved asshole knew enough to miss the carotid artery, so she slowly choked to death on her own blood. The second cut just nicked the artery, but cut deep into her spine. Yeah. The sick bastard wanted her to suffer. That oh was very God, clear. That's... Yeah. Wow. And oh, appropriate background music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's heavy. It's when I read that, I like I sat there for a minute. I had to put everything down and just process because that was that was hate. That's that's cruel. hatred involved in that. Yeah. What could bring someone to hate her that much? Her success, her intelligence, the fact that she was a woman, the fact that she treated black people like people. Mm-hmm. That's and she treated. Uh, immigrants like people that she treated poor people like people you know that she treated women like people and demanded (laughs) to be treated as a person herself yeah it is incredibly disgusting and i mm. she was a threat she was a threat to somebody's ego and i honestly believe that's why she was murdered that's sickening yeah and was this caring hard-working and amazing doctor given justice absolutely not The system failed her in every way. Her case was handled in a manner that can only be described as disgustingly malicious. The papers demonized her. She was portrayed as a demented woman for wanting to work in something as gruesome as the field of medicine. She was dragged through the mud for demanding respect and being assertive. They claimed that she was broke and unhappy because she chose to live in a small apartment instead of a grand house with a husband and children. And the reality... Well, she was very happy and fulfilled in her career. She sent money home to her uncle since he was unable to work. Okay. She chose to live humbly to take care of somebody who took care of her. And instead of being given acknowledgement for that and the just the honor that that takes, she was they, dragged for it. That's sickening. There was also speculation about her sexuality, of course. Of course. Yeah, because a woman... Any woman that doesn't get married and has kids must be a lesbian. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. They absolutely did her wrong in every way they possibly could. And that leads me, uh, again, to think that it was one of her colleagues. Somebody with power and position. Mm -hmm. Well, to be able to miss the carotid, like, because you can... You put your fingers on your neck. It's very easy to feel where the carotid is, but for somebody to have enough knowledge and skill to intentionally miss it, mm-hmm. they and had you know to have just how deep some, to go. Yeah, they had to have some knowledge of what they were doing. Yep, but it was ear to ear. Yeah, it. You'd have to be real careful going right there over the sides, but also to be deep enough to like mm-hmm. nick the trachea, so she could actually, if she, if the goal was for her to drown in her blood, they'd have to go deep enough. To nick the trachea, but not so deep as to get the carotids. That there had to have been some skill there. So the the assessment that it, you know, yep. could have been one of her colleagues is not. It's not a bad assessment. No, the laughably named police chief, who was a lazy coward <laughs> named Martin Highland, claimed Doctor Nabe killed herself. 
He said at 5 feet, 6 inches, and 150 pounds, she should have been able to ward off any attack. So by his logic, men can't be murdered at all. (laughs) That must have made his job very weird. Yeah. Fucking idiot. I doubt she would have very easily, because you said that one of the cuts was behind the back of her neck as well? Oh, it went through to her spine. Oh, okay. Okay. But, okay, so twice. Mm-hmm. You said that they slit her throat twice. That's, yes. I, no, I don't buy it. I don't no, buy it in the not slightest. At all. I don't know how anybody could. They can't. And there was blatant evidence that they ignored. Okay. Let's... There was a bloody fingerprint. Her hands had no blood on them. Okay. Okay, that's... Yeah. Real good detective work there, people. Now, fingerprinting was still in its infancy then, but they still knew about it. They still knew enough to know that that was vital evidence, and they fucking ignored it. Yeah. Yep. So, we do have at least one good person standing by, and that we find in the coroner, Dr. Charles D. Durham. He argued vehemently that Dr. Nabe was murdered. Due to the defense wounds that she had on her arms, as well as the fact that he said there's no way she could have done both cuts to herself. Yeah. Yeah. They said that she most likely choked within seconds and would not have been able to precisely make the second cut. Yeah, I I can't imagine that. There's just too much. Yeah. And then this is um, directly from Kabrowski's... um, synopsis that i found on Mm indiana.gov almost 15 months after her death two men were indicted by a grand jury based on detective webster's findings the prosecution believed dr william b craig was engaged to dr nabe and that he wanted out in the past when he had difficulties with women he made it go away one woman who was to be a witness had begged him to marry her when she was 15 he said I pay cash. At the time of her death, Dr. Nabe, who was an accomplished seamstress and dressmaker, had commissioned a dress for $70, which would be about Mm -hmm. $1,932 today's money. With most dress goods at $5 per yard, she had provided the material and she bought the material she bought for $25 from the dressmaker. This highly suggests this was a very special dress for an important occasion. In fact, after her death, the dressmaker destroyed the dress because he said no one would buy a dress of this kind because it would be bad luck. Dr. Nabe confided in a friend she was getting married to a man with an ungovernable temper. Dr. William B. Craig was dean of students and lecturer and financial stakeholder in Indiana Veterinary College. He also would have been very familiar with zoology and the sheep's cut, which is the type reported to have killed her. He met Dr. Nabe in 1905 and maintained at least a friendship. He recommended her for the position of chair of hematology and parasitology. 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 Thank you, dear. You're welcome. In 1909. I said it earlier without a problem. I don't know why. (laughs) And the veterinary college. Uh, He was rumored to be Dr. Nabe's fiance, although at this point, this point was vehemently denied by Dr. Craig. He often drove her home and escorted her to events. Shortly before her death, Dr. Kreb and Dr. Nabe seemed to be in the middle of some sort of ongoing difficulty. Dr. Nabe went to the IVC to see about changing her lecture time with Dr. Craig 
so she could attend her course at normal college. Dr. Craig became enraged when a colleague asked for his answer, and he said, oh, fuck, tell her to go to hell, and he stormed out of the room. The night before Dr. Nabe died, Dr. Craig's housekeeper overheard them arguing, and she heard Dr. Nabe said, but you can continue to practice, and so can I. The second man indicted was, doc- was Mr. Alonzo Ragsdale, was an undertaker and Dr. Nabe's business associate. Dr. Nabe often joked that with Ragsdale that when she died, she would be sure to give him her business, and so she did. Augusta appointed Ragsdale as undertaker and estate executor. He was accused of concealing evidence against Dr. Craig in the form of a kimono Dr. Kanabe was wearing at the time of her death and was said to have he'd laundered it in an effort to rid it of its bloodstains. The defense attacked Dr. Nabe's personal character in the courtroom, claiming she was aggressive and masculine, an aggressive and masculine woman. The character witness designed to discredit Dr. Craig suddenly moved out of state and could not be found. A key mm. witness who was positively identified, who positively identified Dr. Craig changed his story and Dr. Craig's own housekeeper who has signed an affidavit stating she saw him return late and leave early with a bundle of clothes the night Dr. Nabe died refused to come into the courthouse. The statement just was not nearly as powerful as a living body or as a live body in the courtroom. The state's case fell apart after nine days, and the prosecution could not make a connection between Dr. Craig and the evidence. The judge stepped in and essentially the 13 jurors were instructed in an, instructed the 13 jurors of the jury to acquit Dr. Craig. This instruction was very unusual because normally a judge will provide the instruction only when a technical error was committed, which this was not the situation in this trial. He did rule that the prosecution had proven Dr. Nabe had been murdered versus suicide and that they had no real evidence against Dr. Craig. So, yeah. Big sigh. Yeah. So today, Dr. Helen Eloise Nabe um, is interred in Crown Hill Cemetery. And from what I understand, she did not have a proper grave marker either until recently. Seriously? Yep. A group got together and purchased her an actual grave marker. Yeah. I'm glad they got her a grave marker. And that's that's sickening that they didn't give her one to begin with. (sighs) Yep. The case was so mismanaged and badly handled. And to me, it felt like the chief of police. Quote, detective. Yeah. Didn't even want to be bothered to do his job. Of course not. And to have her slandered the way she was afterwards is disgusting. Mm-hmm. It, it's beyond reproach. So yeah, I can understand why there are ghost stories surrounding her. Yeah. Because if anybody in this world deserves to be a vengeful ghost, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's somebody who gave and gave and gave, who worked her ass off, who did everything right. And, and she was killed for being a good person. Yeah. And then wasn't even given justice and death. Nope. Nope. And that's why I thought it was important to talk about now. Just something that we need to address and do better. And remember that this wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. This was 1911. 
you know? Yeah, that's not all that long ago. 110 years. That's it. In in the span of human history, that is, that's nothing. That's yeah. nothing. And yet. And yet. It's incredibly disappointing and incredibly frustrating. And I don't know much about Dr. Craig. Um, I was too pissed off to look into it. Understandably To be so. honest. He was somebody that I did want to look at, though, and, and investigate further. And I just... Honestly, A, I ran out of time because I, I got too into the research. But B, I was just too disgusted. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't deserve to be remembered. Nothing about him deserves to be remembered. No. Other than he took someone from us as a society that could have helped us and advanced us. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's the thing that I think people don't really understand is... Every time somebody who is not considered the norm speaks up and, you know, brings themselves out of these situations and puts themselves in the path of success, and then they're taken from us, you're not just ending their life, you're taking away their contributions from society as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's... That's... I mean, the murder is a crime, of course, of of the worst kind, but that's a crime that I feel echoes much longer, you know, Mm -hmm. and and much more through history in ways that we don't perceive necessarily and understand, but we can't because we don't know what we were deprived of. We have no idea what she might have, you know, gone on to accomplish. Yep, and what she might have done. And I feel like it was the same with Rosalind Franklin because if I'm correct, when she was when she left the university she was working for they made her promise never to work in dna again i was uh, unaware of that i actually don't know no. as much about her story as i should yeah so i mean granted she's an accomplished intelligent woman she contributed in other ways mm-hmm. by far but yeah that was mm. one of the conditions that's Ugh. yeah Ugh, i want to just i know I know. I know. <laughs> That's the, the thing about doing this stuff. Like, I really enjoy history and learning about it. But when you really get deep into it, you see all its follies and all its foils and the things that, like, we as a society have failed and things we could have done and should have done better. And how we have shot ourselves in the foot consistently. Mm-hmm. In a foot race, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's sad, it's frustrating, it's depressing, but at the same time, if you only focus on that, you miss the bigger picture of her life. Mm-hmm. And that was all her accomplishments and everything she did right. And all the... It doesn't take away from the effort she put in or the things she achieved at all. Mm-hmm. So those have to be acknowledged and those things have to be remembered and we have to keep that in our minds as much as anything else. Not just her death, not just her, you know, stories of her ghost or any of that. We also have to vehemently, aggressively cheer for the things she did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, so that's the story. 
Thanks for sharing. <laughs> You're you welcome. mentioned there's a, a book about her. What's it called? Yes. Um, I said it earlier, but I will again. Let me go back in yeah. my notes here. I might have to pick a, pick up a copy of that. Yes. I, I strongly recommend it because, like I said, this was just the synopsis that I found on indiana.gov of it. So. Yeah, a 10-page synopsis. That's... That's like... Uh, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a long synopsis. Yep. Okay. Um, it was author Nicole R. Kobrowski, K-O-B-R-O-W-S-K-I. And the book was called She Sleeps Well, The Extraordinary Life and Murder of Dr. Helen Ellis Hermine Nabe. So. Okay. I imagine that if she sleeps well, we'll probably pull it up too. Yeah, that'll work. Thank you. Not a problem. So, thank you very much for coming in and doing this with me. You're welcome. I'm happy to do it. I really, I've enjoyed this, and I would love to do it again sometime. Good. I'll have you back, especially I think when I do the Rosalind Franklin episode, Mm -hmm. I'll have you back. But if you ever want to do like Henrietta Lacks too, that would be another good one. Yeah. Um, I've thought about covering that one. That one is very well covered, though. Yeah, yeah, it is. So that's the that's the other thing. I try to cover things that aren't as in the spotlight, mm-hmm. you know. So, granted, I've done a few that are very in the spotlight, like Burke and Hare is very well known, mm-hmm. but still like talking about it. So it'd be an interesting one for like Black History yeah, Month. It, it, yeah, that it would. So thinking about it, but I've I've got other I've got so many things on that damn list. I mean. <laughs> could always do the wreck of the edmund fitzgerald on lake superior too that's, that's been a thought too because i've got my disasters well and yeah but i know you've done a couple of shipwreck things but mm-hmm. that's you know that's relatively well known for great lake shipwrecks and the song is just chilling but yeah yeah i i still like even um i've talked to like older people about like some of my clients who are a little older mm-hmm. um which by the way I love that so much mm-hmm. that I, I have clients that are in like their 60s and 70s, you know. Coming in for the first tattoo. Yeah, or coming in for like, you know, more. They've had maybe a few little ones, but now mm-hmm. they're deciding to get more, better. And I love that so much. But uh, I love talking to them, you know. But so many of them haven't, haven't heard of any of these things. They hadn't heard of the Eastland. They hadn't mm-hmm. heard of um, the you know, the Victoria Hall disaster or the Bath, Michigan disaster. The Victoria Hall disaster. I was listening to that episode while I was looking through Walmart trying to find Baja Blast in mm-hmm. cans. And I had to just, like, stop there for a second and be like, wait. Wait a sec. Did she just say what I think she said? Which part? Oh, just through the whole part. Like, oh, with all yeah. of the kids and... Yeah. Um, the other one that you... um. I don't remember his name. You're from Toon Junkies. Oh, um, Chris. Um, that was the the Bath, Michigan disaster. And his other one too. Yeah. Oh, the unit. Um, yeah. Seven thirty one. Yes. Yeah. That one was. I was listening to that one at work, and that one uh, was. Uh, yeah. I had a hard time getting through that one. That one was so that he, one was hard to listen he to. He tried to make it palatable, but Taylor was like, "Nope, we're going for the hard shit." And I'm like, <laughs> "I respect it, but damn." Yeah, like <laughs> that it was, was a hard one. It was fascinating, and I was glad to listen to it. Like glad to know about it. Yeah, but it was tough to listen to. Very, very, and that's kind of the thing about dark history. They're important stories. Mm-hmm. We don't like to talk about them because they're not palatable. But no. 
it's important for us to remember the depths of depravity that people can sink to and how this is just, uh, you know, how often it's just men and women who look innocuous. They look, you know, the perception of normal that are capable mm-hmm. of some very evil and very awful things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's, we want in our childhood kind of like minds sometimes to believe that villains wear dark hats and twirl mustaches and they're easy to spot and nothing could be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. I think real villains are the hardest to spot. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had a friend uh, once ask, or not really ask, you came up in conversation fairly organically. Mm -hmm. Uh, We ended up talking about why so many women are uncomfortable like just on the street around men or just around men in general mm-hmm. sometimes and I mentioned to him it's like because while so many men are so great mm-hmm. you can't tell from a glance which ones are going to rape and murder you exactly. for not giving them your phone number exactly or throw acid in your face mm-hmm. or yeah some shit like that yeah you can never tell no nope. who's who's going to be safe and who's not the thing that I've encountered too is I am not what is considered conventionally attractive and I'm okay with that. That's not something that I lament at all. And one of the reasons is because I have several friends who are considered quote unquote hot. I have witnessed firsthand men treat them like public property. Mm-hmm. Like their only purpose is to please these men. Mm-hmm. via their appearance or via what they say or their responses like they're owed their time mm-hmm. and it's ridiculous the spoiled entitlement in that mindset is disgusting oh that's one reason why i don't like i don't really go to bars yeah at least not like the time where you find the creative like if i'm gonna go to a bar it's gonna be like seven o'clock and I'm going to get a couple of pints and I'm going to go home. Yeah. But like, I don't go to the bars because just even just sitting at the bar as a woman, like people are going to come up to you and you have to, for your own safety sake, you have to put on that smile Mm -hmm. and you can't just say, get lost loser. Yeah. Fuck off. I don't want to deal with you today. Yeah. You know, you can't, you can't just tell them you're not allowed to have a bad day. You're not allowed to have any sort of real anything in your life. Mm -hmm. And that is just fucking sick and sad, but they firmly believe it. They firmly believe it. Oh, and you can't argue with them about it because then they'll, they'll try the passive aggressive shit of, well, it's just a compliment. It's not just a compliment. It's never, no, it's not. It comes loaded with expectations and you're not owed those things. You're just not, you're not, you're not. And the quote unquote, nice guy myth pisses me off more than anything. That, Why do women never want to date me? I'm oh, such a nice guy. You're, first off, if you've ever uttered those words, go to therapy now. <laughs> go to therapy instantly because you are not. You are an entitled prick. The entire concept of the friend zone I find to be problematic. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's like being like saying that you've been put in the friend zone. Does that not imply that you 
think that you should be getting something more, that that's something bad. Also, what's wrong with being just friends with a woman? Yeah, exactly. It's like, why can't you just value her friendship? I love to be friends with women. I would have no problem if somebody's like, oh, you're in the friend zone with her. It's like, okay. Mm -hmm. I like being her friend. No. That's perfectly acceptable. And I, and I, I've had male friends because I have a lot of male friends. I I get along with pretty much everybody, but I have had male friends that have objectified some of my friends that are conventionally attractive. Mm -hmm. And I'm always a little bit disgusted suddenly. I, it fundamentally changes my view of them. Like, not that they're attracted to them. Mm-hmm. That's normal. I'm attracted to them, too. Right. You know? <laughs> In that you, non-creepy you, way that women are to each other. That, you like, have oh, that friend that's just very attractive. Exactly. Like, I'm super attracted to you. But I'm not, like... Exactly. I, I'm not, like, going to be creepy. Like, You're a goddess, and let me tell you, you know? Exactly. It's very different. <laughs> I expect nothing from you. I just need you to know, you know? But that's that's not the way that men compliment women it's never with that i'm just telling you because i think you need to know or maybe it'll brighten your day it's i have an expectation that you will somehow repay me for this i do have like i have met men that can give those compliments that way like they do exist and i they're wonderful they're wonderful we love them yes but the vast majority of the time that's not the case no no i and i don't know if it's just like a pre-programmed social awkwardness <laughs> or if it's a genuine malintent you know i don't know it, it's but one way or another they need to learn to do better this is not a new argument and every time it's brought up it's this well women need to no no stop that right now you know and i hate that argument even for my children you know, my child does something wrong and then they turn to me and they go, yeah, but she shut the fuck up right now because we're not talking we about that. We this person separately. Exactly. Right now we're focusing on you. Exactly. And adults, so many adults don't get that concept, especially like in politics. If you argue politics with anybody, the <laughs> first thing they say is, yeah, but that group and it doesn't matter which side of the aisle. I used Both to sides t- do that. And it's like, stop mm-hmm. being a child, accept responsibility Stop playing the hot potato blame game because guess what? We're not getting anywhere with that. I had an ex. We were on opposite sides of the political aisle. And Mm -hmm. this was the same ex that would gaslight me. Mm -hmm. So imagine talking politics with somebody who's your political opposite who also gaslights you all the time. It was not a good time. No. It was absolutely not a good time. No. No. I don't like politics in general, you know, because I feel like it kind of dumbs everybody down. And it kind of like, hey, here's your color-coded thought process. You don't need to think for yourself anymore. Enjoy, you Mm -hmm. know? And so it's, I think it's been watered down to that so much. And there's like, there's a couple different kinds of people. They're the people that cling to that. Like, yes, this is my whole identity now. Mm -hmm. I am this thing with everything in me. Those people I write off right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I won't even argue with those people because they are not reasonable human beings. They don't have an identity. Mm-hmm. They had to cling to something to find one. And that's sad. That's that's somebody I'm not even 
going to give the time of day to, you know? And then there's, there's more of the middle group, which is like, yeah, but I feel like most of my viewpoints align with them and there's so much information out there. I don't know where to look or where to go. Those people I find, you know, I feel like maybe we, they can be saved, you know? And in a two-party system like we've got in the U.S., exactly you kind of have to pick one or the other there's not you can't which is bullshit tell me that's freedom tell me that's freedom that we only have two solutions to every problem it's not it really isn't it comes down to picking which group you tend to align with best yeah it's not actually taking you know a dozen or so different options and finding the one you genuinely fit with yeah you have to pick whichever one is closest to your size it's like hey look we have a size zero and a size 14 which one do you want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Neither one is going to fit you, by the way. Exactly. But enjoy. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's probably the best analogy you can make for it. it. It's really sad. I think the third group of people, too, are the people that are, uh, you know, a little more like you and me who, like, see the flaws in the system and see it for what it is and are like, I'm not aligning with either one mm-hmm. because both of them are fucked up and we need to do better. We can do better. It's entirely possible for us to do better. And instead of doing better, we're color coding ourselves like the Bloods and the Crips and arguing. Mm -hmm. And accomplishing nothing. Yeah. Accomplishing fucking nothing. And we're just watching it all crumble, you know? Oh, yeah. And at this point, I'm just, I I feel like I'm that Michael Jackson gif, you know, where he's just sitting there eating the popcorn. popcorn. I'm just watching it at this point because... Uh, you can't stop them. They're mm-hmm. not going to see reason anytime soon. Yeah. And unfortunately, that first group seems to make up the majority of both sides. I th- and I can't. I honestly, can't do I it, think the so. second group actually, at least in my experience, it's more yeah. the second group that makes up both Maybe sides. Maybe I'm just more jaded. Well, there's also the people in that first group. Mm-hmm. They yell the loudest. Yes. That's very they, true. They make up That's most very of what true. you hear. Yeah. They may not be the largest portion, but they are most of what you hear about. Yeah. I just, it's frustrating. Like They're the comment I'll, section. Exactly. <laughs> I'll go out and I will vote. But at the end of the day, I don't like having to pick which one fits best out of the two options. Exactly. It's like, it's like taking the multiple choice test in school instead of the essay test. It's like... Mm-hmm. <sighs> and the fact that we as a country aren't outraged that that's the best we can do... It is staggering to me. It's not the best we can do. We yeah. could do so much more. We, can. we could have more parties. We can, but that's the best being offered to us. Mm-hmm. And nobody's mad about that, and I don't get it. There are a lot of people that are mad about it, though. Yeah. Getting there. I think more people are. Oh, it's going to storm. Oh, it is. Pretty wow. bad here fairly soon. Oh, I love storms, though. Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. It's going to be great. Like, open the blinds a little bit while I'm pouring some resin. Yes. Oh, the sound of rain on tin. Ooh. On tin roofs. I, I could listen to that forever. I, I loved it. We, uh, when Scott and I were kind of between homes, mm-hmm. <laughs> at one point we were staying with his mother, who, wonderful woman. I have a great mother-in-law. I can never fall into that trope because mm-hmm. my mother-in-law is a fantastic person. Um. She let us stay with her for a while, and she had a tin roof. And Ooh. every time it would rain, it was like it almost made up for the fact she didn't believe in air conditioning. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! That sounds terrible. <laughs> uh, I dealt. I was not going to complain. I had a roof over my head and a place to sleep. So, oh, of course, obviously, but you're in between places. You take what you can get. Exactly. You do not get picky. But uh, 
yeah, the the rain on the roof was just a wonderful sound. I loved. I like. I would keep myself awake just listening mm-hmm. to it because it's, it's soothing. Something about rain in general, though. I I know it's very basic white girl kind of thing, but mm-hmm. I love it. I love the smell. I love the oh, sound. The smell of rain. Yeah, I even like standing out in it. Even if it's like I don't know something about even when it's like cold and it kind of stings a little bit when it mm-hmm. hits. I just like that. It's it's. I feel alive, you know? Yeah. It was a, just a couple of weeks ago. It was like predicted to be super hot and sunny all day, but you know, it was randomly not mm-hmm. right at the time that I decided that I wanted to go out and vape in the middle of the work day. <gasps> oh, so of I, course. You know, I go up <laughs> and I see that it's just pouring cats and dogs. So I'm like, I'm going to go grab the umbrella that we keep in the lab because we, we have an extra umbrella in the lab for mm-hmm. like any if my boss has to go over to the other lab or if you know whatever for whatever reason it's like storming and nobody brought an umbrella we have one extra cool so I went down I pick up the umbrella go back up there and I'm like all right I'm gonna take off my shoes uh, like right by the right inside the door mm-hmm. like I'm gonna leave my leave my nice moccasins here I'm gonna roll up my pants and I'm gonna go out in the storm and it was windy and there was thunder and lightning off in the distance and it was mm. great. Like I, I paused my audiobook and I just stood out there and of course, you know, no shoes and there was, you know, some water because it was raining really heavy. Yeah. It felt so nice to just feel the, the water from the rain on my oh, feet. It was, it was so nice. <laughs> it was warm. It was like, a, it was a hot day mm-hmm. but because it was so cloudy, it was so overcast. It was nice and shaded. The water felt like warm but not hot. It was very, very nice. Oh, that sounds great. I The last time that I really like sat out in a storm was actually, I think it was a couple weeks ago, and it was um, me, Boss, and Andrea were Ooh, sitting yeah. outside, and I think Haley was with us, and we were just enjoying it. Like, it was a downpour. Mm-hmm. and But again, it, the sounds, the way that even like we're looking at the clouds, you know, mm-hmm. and how they're like building and twisting and moving and... You know, you get a bunch of artists together, we're going to find a lot of stupid shit to be amazed at. (laughs) But yeah, we were all staring out there and just really just enjoying it. It was nice. Even like the wind blowing through and Mm -hmm. because it's been it's been like Satan's asshole hot lately. There's a reason why I came over in just like this this little skirt and mm -hmm. then the cami. Of course, I had to bring the it's just really just like a T-shirt material, but it's got a hood. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like. I'm going to get cold in the shop if I don't have this, but it's so fucking hot outside. And then I turn off the air. Oh, <laughs> you I, poor am, thing. I am a little warm, but it's not too bad. Yeah. I'm okay for now, but I will be taking off this outer layer before I go outside. Yeah, I think I think it was the, the episode with Andrea, the 17th century one that we did about the Fair of the Poisons, that the air kept kicking on and I couldn't edit it out and I was so mad. I'm like, God damn it, but it's it was such a good episode. I couldn't not put it out there. Aqua Tafana. Aqua Tafana. <laughs> yeah. The Bailey Sarian. <laughs> yeah. That's actually the only Bailey Sarian video I've ever seen. Really? Yeah. Um, a friend of mine sent it to me. It was Emma. She's like, okay, you have to watch this. I'm like, okay. I, you know, I turned off my show and I put the, put the video on and I watched the video. I was like, oh, this is actually kind of cool. Yeah. I kind of like this. I, I have, uh, I have such mixed feelings. Like, I, I loved Bailey Sarian. I mm-hmm. loved the the Murder Mystery Makeup Mondays. And then she started a podcast called Dark History. Oh. And I'm like, fuck! <laughs> I'm 
like your niche great well i'm never gonna have that level because i don't have an established audience base and damn it but at the same time go girl you know it's one day you might actually i very much doubt it but i you know even then it's just fun to do I love an excuse to learn something. And this gives me an excuse to really sit down and research. Mm -hmm. And I love that. So for that reason alone, I'll continue doing it just so I can keep learning. Oh, yeah. So what you do is great. I I love it. I love listening and I like being part of it is so exciting. I love that. I'm so glad. Yeah. Other than I think you and Andrea. um, (laughs) You and Andrea listen. And um, well, no, I had to. I had Rachel on and she listens. So, hi, Rachel. And, um, but yeah, my brother doesn't. My family doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, like, my mom. My mom does. I don't know if she does so much anymore, but she did really strong in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she does try to keep up. And I've tried with my dad, but my dad is not sure how podcasting works. Um, so, where he is interested and he wants to, he has no fucking clue how to get to it. <laughs> Honestly, I've never really so, listened to podcasts before this. So I was like, yeah. okay, I'm going to have to figure this out. But I think Spotify uh, has podcasts. so They do. And I love it. I love podcasts in general. For me, it's like you were talking about how you'll put on Netflix or something mm-hmm. like that. That's why I like podcasts because I can paint, I can draw, I can work. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to look at anything. That's honestly, that's one thing that I love about audiobooks. Yeah. Because I can listen to an audiobook while I'm, you know, setting up libraries, RNA libraries. I can... Mm-hmm. I can listen to an audiobook while I'm knitting. I don't have to be holding open a physical book. I can, exactly. you know, just look at my knitting. I can listen to the book, be immersed in a world. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff that I listen to is hours and hours on end. Yeah. There was I managed to get all the way through it in mm-hmm. like a long weekend. Nice. See, and I, that audiobook me, is like 45 hours long. Yeah. The way I consume books is for me they're almost like a treat. Okay. You know, where I'll, I'll read it like when I have downtime and it, so I can stop and not do anything. Mm-hmm. So for me, it, books are me time, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not doing my artwork. I'm, I'm not, you know, doing anything for clients. I'm not doing anything for my family. I'm not doing anything for friends. I am taking, it, it will always be hours because I can't read. <laughs> right. I can't read for just half an hour and put a book down. I don't know who those freaks are, but I'm not one of them. I actually can't, but that's mostly because I love if you, I, but like, freak. If I sit down, if I sit down and just start reading, uh-huh. I'll frequently after like a half an hour, I'll be like, "All right, eyes stay open." Even when I'm like really invested in the story, mm-hmm. I have a hard time just sitting down and just staring at the page and reading like that anymore. See, I know I get. I've heard somebody describe books as like a mild hallucination. And oh, yeah. that's very much how it is for me. I am in it. Mm-hmm. I will not hear or notice anything going on around me when mm-hmm. I'm reading. I so can, I can absolutely be that way. It really it depends on the book and it depends on how much sleep I've gotten lately. Yeah, that'll do it. I, I always, understand that. I always stay up later than I should on work nights. I mean, I mm-hmm. still get, you know, six to eight hours of sleep. But as I discovered on my vacation, my body likes nine hours of sleep. Hmm. But I like my I like my me time mm-hmm. more than I like feeling completely well rested at work. That's kind of what I'm at, you know, between work and then all my responsibilities with my family and things like that. Like, I'll stay up late because sometimes it's the only time I get to work on mm-hmm. my own art projects or to watch things that I want to watch or to read things I want to read, mm-hmm. you know. 
And it's like sleep or getting time to myself where I just get to unwind and relax. Mm-hmm. Which one? <laughs> yeah. I try to find the happy medium where I only lose exactly. a little sleep. Yeah. But I get that little bit extra time. Yep. I'm there with you. That's how I feel about it too. But it, it's definitely hard to kind of find that balance. Mm-hmm. But. but yeah, I, uh, I recently got a new book actually. I'm very excited for it. Oh. It's called Rage. Okay. It's by Stephen King. Ooh. Okay. He took it out of publication in the 90s. Did he? Yes. Hmm. After it was linked with like five school shootings. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I probably would have too. Good call there. That's uh, an absolutely <laughs> good call for him. Like, it's still out there. And mm-hmm. like collectors and King fans like myself, like I, a goal of mine is to read every Stephen King book ever written. Mm-hmm. Which is going to be a challenge because he writes a lot. Yeah. Um, it's like... As a King fan and completionist, I wanted to get it. I wanted to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not cheap to get a hold of. Like, yeah. I managed to get a hold of a copy, a 1980s edition of the Bachman Books collection. It mm-hmm. still has it. Oh. Um, just that one book. It only comes in, it's only available in hardcover. You have to get it. I got it from Thrift Books. Mm-hmm. From Thrift Books. Mm-hmm. It's like 90 bucks. Whoo. Yeah. Yep. It is hard to find. Um. But, of course, being so hard to find, and because it's gotten so expensive to find, because mm. it was published in the 70s, I believe, and then taken out of publication in the 90s, the only people that really get a hold of it nowadays are collectors and King fans. Okay. It's not going to fall into the hands of, you know, some random moody teen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Yeah. Just into the hands of bibliophiles, which is fine. Mm-hmm. So Exactly. <laughs> It's, it's, like, a, it's a fairly innocuous group, so... From what I understand, pretty innocuous, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. I started Give us it, tea, give us coffee. That's what we, would, we demand. I haven't gotten very far in it, but so far, I mean, I've gotten, like, 20 pages in. I was reading it a little bit the other day at work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm very, I'm very excited to read it. It's, like, it's the one that you can really struggle to find. Yeah. I don't know, I've, I've, I've got a few books that... I have, but again, I just, I haven't gotten into them lately. For for the most part, and this is so terrible, I know it's terrible, like, it's just really quick, easy to consume, like, mm-hmm. romance novels. Oh, yeah. I, I know it's potato chips for the brain. I get that. But every now and then you need a fucking potato chip, okay? So, like... <laughs> Twilight was put back on Netflix. Was put on Netflix. Yeah, I'm not a Twilight fan, though. And that's the problem with it, too. There's so many, like, I'll start reading and it's like, oh, this is problematic, and I chuck it. You know, it's like, I gotta find something better. See, I read Twilight back um, before they had all come out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was right in that, like, yeah. 13-year-old age group where I wasn't old enough to see how problematic it was. Mm-hmm. So I loved it at yeah. you know 13 14 years old and then it got big and you know the teenage me was like oh no that's cool now no i don't like it anymore and then i got into college and i started mm-hmm. like thinking more about what was actually in it mm-hmm. i was like wait a sec that's really not okay yeah that's that's not romantic that's creepy and exactly. i realized how problematic it was and then as an adult you know after college and stuff at 27 now going back to it i'm like this is still terrible but it's terrible in a way that i can kind of appreciate now it's like yeah it's so terrible that it's funny how bad it is yeah something that's like i think you can get entertainment value out of the hilarity of it 
So, but I don't necessarily think that teenage girls should be reading it because they might take no. it as... No, because they're going to think that's how love should be. And it's like, nope. That's what 13-year-old me <laughs> thought was romance. Exactly. And that's not at all accurate. And that's kind of the problem with romance novels, too, is like some women forget that it, it's just fantasy. It's the equivalent of reading about a dragon. It's not real. It's not going to happen, babe. And, you know, they get it in their head that that's reality or that's how relationships should actually be. And it's like, no, no. No, no. And I, I hate the the concept of like, oh, you're just waiting for that one mystical person to like come in and fix your life. Like, I hate that. I hate mm, it. It's disgusting it because it holds so many great women back because they, then they're sitting there their whole life waiting for some dumbass to stumble out of the ether and complete them. And it's like, you know, you could have been doing shit. The whole time. You could have been trying to... And making something You should have been trying to complete yourself. Exactly. And then when you find... If and when you find the right person, you are with them because you choose to spend your lives together and share in your mutual success, not because you have some codependence and need them to feel complete in your life. Exactly. But then they always assume that, oh, well, the reason that I'm not fulfilled when I have somebody is because this isn't the right person. And it's like, no, that's that's not it. You're not fulfilled because this is not what fulfills you. Have you, you know? seen Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Uh-uh. Oh, it's fantastic. It's it's on yeah. Netflix. Uh, it's got it's like a musical TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a comedy, and the main character is a successful lawyer, and then she randomly comes across an ex-boyfriend from ten years ago, mm-hmm. and she's like, when was the? She finds she sees a butter commercial that asks her, when was the last time you were truly happy? And she has flashbacks to summer camp as a teenager where she, you know, fell madly in love with this boy and then they mm-hmm. lost touch and never hadn't spoken in 10 years. Well, she sees him and she's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to uproot my life and move to the middle of nowhere, California. So she does. Oh, and God. over the course of four seasons, she gets, um, she's just got terrible mental health issues, but she, you know, gets therapy. She gets a diagnosis and treatment, mm-hmm. but there's songs all throughout every episode has you know two to three songs and they're they're really funny uh one of them is settle for me it's uh mm-hmm. one of the guys who was actually santino fontana he won uh a tony for his performance in tootsie i believe okay cool, uh, cool. very very talented broadway actor mm-hmm. um he has a uh, a couple of good songs there's just so many good songs some of them are funny uh, uh so the math of love triangles and it's <laughs> It's a bunch of math puns. Oh, God. And we tapped that ass. It's, it's a song about, you know, the, she, the, your main character, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. She's having, uh, not hallucinations, but like mental pictures of the two guys that she had been dating. And they decided to do a tap dance about everywhere, about how much sex they had had. Oh God! So you've got the the That's two hilarious. the two like at the time the, like the two guy romantic characters that she had been invo- involved with, mm-hmm. singing and doing a tap dance together, about how they had done it all over the house. Oh my God! That's hilarious. It is. I'll have so to look funny. that up. And I'll the, have to. The, and the conclusion, like the first time I saw the end, was like, but which guy are you gonna pick? Mm-hmm. But that's not at all how it ends. Like that's not the purpose of the ending. Yeah. She's like. I'm, she decides, she's like, I'm going to find fulfillment in myself and in her love. That's perfect. And that's that's very much how it should be. And her love is something artsy. Aww. Of course. So, of course. Because all of the songs are in her head, so it's all musical theater. Of course, yeah. <laughs> but I was going to say, I kind of can guess. <laughs> yeah, it's... 
I think you'll like it. It's not I, something that you want Sorsha to watch with you. No. <laughs> it's it's adult, I kind of got the feeling, yeah. It's not like porn or anything, <clears> but it's it's definitely, there's a lot of innuendo. It's it's very funny. There's a song, Oh My God, I Think I Like You. Mm-hmm. And it starts up like, uh, the beginning is like, you've been tearing me up for a week and a half. I don't mean like in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> yep, definitely not watching that with a kiddo. <laughs> nope. But it's oh, she's so already. Good. It gets into, you know, mental health. You have to be like, careful with her because she's already too adult sometimes. I mean, wait, you did take the penis home, didn't you? Yes, but I had to hide it because she fucking found it. Didn't you say she tried to take it to school one day? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So for this, <laughs> this is a story out of itself. Megan was this kind makes enough. It the podcast. It will. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Megan got me. I, I, okay, I have a thing where I like. I make penile art <laughs> for whatever fucking reason. It started with with making penis snowflakes, and it's exploded from there. With Scott, yeah. And Megan got me a stuffed penis, who we then named Bub the Chub. And I kept him at the shop as a comfort thing for like clients because, haha, funny, you know. Sometimes they need something to, you know, squeeze if they're getting a tattoo and they're in pain. Distract themselves. Here's something that you can squish. To exactly, exactly. But with the pandemic and everything, we got rid of all uh, any, you know, fabrics like that that you know people touch and mm-hmm. you can't really sanitize like you know that. So we got rid of him. He had to come home with me. He went in the washer and then he uh, went in my room. And my daughter found him. <laughs> Did not realize what it was. Just thought it was this cute little pink thing. And tried to put it in her backpack and take it to school. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> oh, the, the teachers, I can only imagine how her teachers would have reacted. Oh, they would yeah. have probably been so red, and, but trying not to laugh. We've already had conversations. Because she's grown up in a tattoo shop, you yeah. know? Like, she's heard and seen things. Like, nothing wildly inappropriate, but, you know... More than most kids, and we've already had to like kind of explain things, and, and mm-hmm. she's she's got a wild imagination. Like we had, um, okay, she lost a tooth. Oh, okay. And we didn't want to just set it on the side table. We wanted to put it in something so it didn't get lost. Yeah. And her father and I were looking around and we couldn't find anything. And what we found <laughs> was a dollhouse toilet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's it's now the tooth toilet. <laughs> Nice. So we have lots of shit like that that comes up over and over again just from being in kind of like a creative mm-hmm. house. But she lost a tooth at school recently. <laughs> and we got a call from her teacher going, why does she want to keep throwing her tooth in the toilet? And we're like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> that's not that toilet. Oh, that's so funny. So we had to explain to them what the tooth toilet was. But Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, it makes me think of an experiment that I did as a kid. Oh? Um, so I was like, I was, I was little. I was like, okay, mom and dad say that the tooth fairy is real. And I always get the dollars under my pillow. Mm. So, but I had no way to verify. Mm-hmm. So one time I was over at, um, I think my aunt and uncle's, my uncle hunted and he had some like animal skulls just sitting around. And mm-hmm. one of them, when I was looking at them, I noticed that one of them had like a tooth that was, like, wasn't really actually in place. Mm-hmm. I was like, 
I slipped this into my pocket. So that night and for the whole next week, I put the animal tooth under my pillow. Yeah. Just to see. Didn't tell my parents. Didn't tell my parents anything. <laughs> Every day Sneaky. I would wake up and that animal tooth was still there. That's hilarious. <laughs> I kind of love that though. <laughs> I'm waiting for something like that with her because I can see it. I can totally oh, she see will. it. If she's got the mind of a little scientist, which from what I understand of like children with autism, they they think in very uh, very different ways, ways that very. are very creative, but very things I wouldn't I would very never, logic oriented yeah. within their own system of logic. Mm-hmm. You can bet your ass that she's gonna find ways to test things like Santa oh, yeah. and the Tooth Fairy. She's gonna find ways. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have no idea. Next thing you know, she's going to be 30. And you're going to be hearing about these things on somebody's podcast. And be like, okay, that was clever. (laughs) (laughs) She already has kind of with like liquid soaps. Because she's realized there's a difference between hand soap and dish soap. And Mm -hmm. shampoo and conditioner. And so I have several times wondered hey, she's been in the bathroom for like 20 minutes. So either <laughs> something is wrong or something is wrong. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I need to figure out what. And then I'll find empty bottles of dish soap or hand soap or shampoo. Mm-hmm. And it's always my expensive shampoo. <laughs> Honestly, I tried bar shampoo. And I keep meaning to order more because I love the bar shampoo that I yeah. used. But I just haven't gotten around to ordering more. Because Does it every work time for colored I... hair? Hmm? Does it work for colored hair? It's supposed to, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm careful with my purple. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot of different bar shampoos out there. Um, mm-hmm. I use the one. I think it's by Humby Organics. Mm-hmm. I get it from. I don't remember where. I'll t- I'll send you a message when I remember where it's cool. from. Um, but it's really nice. So I I don't like sulfate free shampoos. They always leave my hair feeling really greasy. So I was mm-hmm. looking for one that wasn't a sulfate free shampoo, okay. and I found that one, and it's made. Uh, not with uh, SLS, but like the coconut derivative, like so- okay. uh, sodium coconut sulfate instead of sodium laurel sulfate. Um, and it's it's supposed to be better for the environment. I haven't done research on the actual chemical impact mm-hmm. on the environment, but it's advertised as being better for the environment. Um, cool. And it worked really, really well with my hair. I really liked it. You know, you got a bar of shampoo, so you don't have the big old plastic bottle that's taking up so much space. It's not plastic going into the landfill. It was even shipped in like a, a wax paper. Oh, cool. Like, uh, paper uh, paper packaging. So things recyclable, mm-hmm. green. I like that. I like that a lot. It was really cool. I really I really liked it too. And I it wasn't terribly expensive. Cool. It was cheaper than the Nexus crap that I had been using in my hair, spending way too much money on. Yeah. Well, if Fenelink send it to me. Yeah. So, yeah. But... I think we have gotten to the end here. We have so much content that's totally unrelated <laughs> to Dr. Nomad. It is every freaking episode. Every episode. Andrea oh, yeah. and I are bad about it. Like, okay. last one, I had to do two parts because of it. it. We went three fucking hours. Honestly, I'm really curious so. to see how much of this stays in and how much uh, Most gets... of it. I okay. edit very little out. Okay. Because I, I kind of feel like full disclosure, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, I haven't said anything that would, like, yeah. get me in trouble at work. Anything so. that's overly controversial or anything that people, like, don't want, like, revealed about themselves mm-hmm. or personal information. Yeah. I'll let it out for, you know, 
a variety of reasons or somebody will say something that like you know on second thought that wasn't worded very well i'm not sure i want that out there because i don't want people to take that out of context Mm -hmm. you know stuff like that yeah but yeah i've edited very little otherwise (laughs) it requires more time than i have mostly it's me getting rid of my um 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 i took a punch myself in the face i took a speech course in high school and that's one thing that they pointed out like Mm -hmm. To everyone, on you know, in the very first week, it's like everybody's going to say a lot of ums, mm-hmm. so remove it from your vocabulary. And ever yeah. since that speech course, I've noticed within myself, I tend to do a lot fewer ums. I might speak slower or have a little bit I more slightly more try, disjointed, but I just can't get myself away from it. It's really just habit. Uh, I used to say a lot of ums, and that's right what there, I, I feel just, like I it is a lot. One. Yeah, it's but like it's, security blanket. It's just habit. It's your brain's. I believe it's your brain's way of filling in those gaps when your your thought process hasn't yet caught up to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. The things are just coming out of your mouth, but your brain hasn't caught up, and it's your way of putting in that artificial pause mm-hmm. so your brain can catch up. Yeah, that's why I've gotten to the point to where I'll just pause altogether mm-hmm. rather than say that so that I don't want to hit myself repeatedly <laughs> as I edit. So anyway, all right. Um, once more, though, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was nice having you here. It was good talking to you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I've had so. a brilliant time. Like, this has been fantastic. Good. I'm glad you'll be willing to do it with me again. 100%. Awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> I will drag all my friends into this. <laughs> but mostly you guys seem to like it, so that's that's good. But All right. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for uh, coming back and listening to the podcast. Again, I always appreciate um, everybody who comes back and listens you guys are great and um you can always find me on social media again still at wicked meth on uh, on facebook sorry and then uh we do have the wicked side of that i am on on uh instagram and on twitter though the twitter is very dead i just don't have time to balance that much social media most active is going to be instagram so that's what i recommend to everybody and then you can always message me through there if you have anything you want to say about the show or anything you'd like me to know or if you're interested in being a guest you can always message me there on uh, instagram so thank you very much everybody like i said before thank you again megan for being here with me today and um, we'll see you all on the other side